You're listening to the Centre Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message recorded live from our Burgess Hill campus. Hi, glad to be here this morning. Um, I am incidentally on call <laughs> for all these hospitals. Um, I'm, I'm usually only on call for the Princess Royal Hospital in Haywards Heath, but today um, circumstances mean that I'm on call for the Royal Sussex County, the Royal Alexander Children's Hospital. It's about a thousand beds, that's all. So just pray they all just sleep quietly for an hour or so. <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know that I could have helped you with that medical terminology, but I do sit through a whole litany of such things at least once a week. So I'm learning. <laughs> I pick up bits as I go along. But mainly my ministry is praying for people uh, that need to be prayed for. Yesterday we had a major incident declared because of that tragedy at the Shore and Air Show. Um, we didn't need to do anything specific at the time, but when such a thing happens, you never know. The last major incident was not long ago. It was the Brighton bus crash that you probably heard of. Well, there I was called in to minister, and I prayed for a number of those who were injured in that crash. So sometimes we're called in uh, because the, the victims are there. In this case, um, I shouldn't give you many details, but I can say most of the victims went to another hospital. So that's why I wasn't called. Now, we heard a reading from Psalm 89 earlier on that talked about an awesome God, and I'm going to tell you some stories this morning, or a story, a big story about an awesome God that you may never have heard. I think one or two of you here may have heard something about it in the beginning. It was back in the 1990s. But the text that I'm going to use to, as you were, give an introduction to this is in Acts chapter 2, and it's just a quote from the prophet Joel, which occurs in verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The, the verse, or half a verse really, I suppose, um, I'm referring to in this is your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. And that's where we'll start. In 1989, uh, I was uh, asked to go and visit some big mission organizations in the States. At the time, I was working as a missionary in the Middle East, covering the entire area, about 22 countries. And as a, as a result of a big conference in the Far East, a global evangelism conference, I was invited to visit with some mission leaders in the States. And I was on that journey. I was in California. I know strange things happen in California. Everybody does, but <laughs> I wasn't expecting what happened to me. I was just having a rest in the afternoon, uh, kind of siesta, I guess, a bit of jet lag or something. Um, and I saw a vision. Now, I'm hesitant to say a great deal about what that actually means, but it was something the like of which I'd never experienced in my Christian life, and I haven't experienced such a thing since. There are two parts to this. There were two visions, one in California and one in Lindfield, in Sussex, a bit nearer. But it was still on my own, uh, just having a rest. 
It was as if I was taken up into the heavens, up into the sky, literally, and I was looking down on an area of the earth that stretched from the Canary Islands to Central Asia, right the way across, all the way across North Africa and the Middle East, Central Asia. And from the heaven was pouring down the Spirit of God. The Word of God was coming down on this whole area. And then the vision came to an end, and as it were, I came back down to earth. And then, uh, not long after, because it was on the same journey, so it was on the way home, uh, I was preaching at that time in Linfield, and I had this um, second vision. And that vision was different. Again, I was taken up, and I was in the same position, above the skies, and I looked down on the same area of the world. This time, from that area, came thousands of maybe millions of people robed in white and entered into the heavens. Now, I haven't read the passage in Revelation, but most of you know that the imagery of people dressed in white going into heaven are martyrs. They're not the average everyday Christian, they're martyrs. So I was a bit stunned by this, and I just took it, and I sort of went on my way. And God seemed to say to me, well, you will see what happens in the future. Later on, I was uh, uh, ministering for a time in Germany, um, and I was doing a seminar. A whole weekend, a church had asked to do a whole weekend looking at the subject of Islam and the Muslim world. And so I was ministering to this church in, in Wiesmar, giving talks and lectures and so on. And a young man came up and prophesied. So here we are, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will have dreams and visions and so on. This young man turned out, I did ask who he was because I didn't, couldn't quite tell. Um, he looked more like a rocker off a motorbike than he did the average son of a Baptist minister, but he was. He was a great Christian lad. Uh, he loved motorbikes and all that kind of stuff. And he came up and he prophesied over me. And one of the things he said was, you will, you will be led into something the scale of which you have no idea. Now, that's his translation from German, but that's basically what he said. So, you know, with these things going around in my mind, uh, in 1995, when I came back to England and settled here, at least as I thought for the foreseeable future, and I've been here ever since, I thought, what on earth can all these things mean? And uh, in 1995, around the time of September, I was replacing the windows in my house in Haywards Heath. And a double glazing guy came along to give me a quote. He came into the house and he looked around my house. There were pictures, photographs. There was a photograph of me visiting some higher art clergy guy. There was another, vision, uh, another picture of something else, a Christian picture. Oh, he said, uh, you're religious. I said, well, no, not really. I mean, you wouldn't really use the word religious to describe me in the way I go about things. But anyway, uh, yeah, okay, what, what else? Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian and I'm a missionary. Um, oh, he said, uh, he said uh, it's a different, different subject. He said, but do you know anything about satellites? I said, satellites? I said, oh. Yeah, I said, I do. 
And I said, you might be surprised to know that before I became a missionary, I was a satellite systems engineer. I know all about satellites and what to do with them, where they are, where they go, how to get them there, how to look after them when they're up there, and how to communicate with them. Fine. Oh, he said, oh, interesting. He said, maybe you can help my cousin. I said, well, what on earth does your cousin do? He said, well, he's involved in Christian broadcasting by satellite, but he has no idea about satellite. He seems to, he thinks God's told him to go and use satellites. He thought his cousin was a bit mad. Anyway, so I suggest put him in touch with me. I'll, I'll, I'll gladly help him. Things then began to move quite fast. On December the 23rd, 1995, I was in Norway, and myself, this guy, the cousin, and another gentleman, an Elim pastor, I think he was originally, and what is now. Um, we were in Norway and we launched the very first Christian satellite television station to broadcast over North Africa and the Middle East. We had, we had established it, we had found the satellite, it was a much easier way to do that than these evangelists thought. The guy that was the evangelist is the most well-known evangelist in Norway, they called him the Billy Graham of Norway. Uh, the Norwegians are not shy in telling uh, their population what's going on in Norway. And as a result, we were on the main 9 o'clock news in the evening. With them, These guys are taking the Christian gospel to the Muslim world. Isn't that fantastic? Would you hear that on the 9 o'clock news in England or the 10 o'clock news? No. Norway's different. Uh, they put it on the main news and they put it on the front pages of the newspaper. So we went down to the village and our picture was all over the front pages of the newspaper and all the big titles and stuff. Wow. Now, this um, big event was really only amounting to a half hour or maybe an hour, I can't remember which, of programs a week on a satellite that is looked at by a lot of that part of the world. Okay? It was a little part of that satellite that was used in the old days under the analog system for people to have a go. You felt you knew what you were doing with a satellite TV program. You could have a go. You could you could buy a half-hour slot. It didn't cost too much, a few thousand pounds, but not too much. And that's what we've done. Within just over a month or two, we had enough serious commitments of faith to probably plant a dozen churches in Morocco alone. How did these people find out about this program? There was no advertising. They certainly weren't going to do it. That can create quite a lot of problems. Um, so it, this, the program was there. The Holy Spirit moved amongst that population and got them moving their satellite. Because everybody out there has a steerable dish. It's not like England where you have a little fixed dish and it looks at the sky and that's about all it can do. It's not like that. You have a decent sized dish. You can steer it. You can look at any satellite in the sky. And you'll have available at least a thousand channels. <laughs> now you'll probably have two thousand or three thousand. But anyway, and the state television is very boring. It's not going to interest you very much. So you have a look around. You just scan the sky and have a look. And you see something. You see people worshipping, praising. Wow, that's interesting. I'll listen to that. It's all in Arabic. It's fine. I understand that. And this is how it, how it moved on. So that was December 1995. Unbeknownst to us, there were other people also thinking in the same way. 
Interestingly, the evangelist from Norway is a Pentecostal pastor, and he'd been praying, and he'd had this idea, but he had, again, a word from the Lord. Do you know what the word from the Lord said to him? Do you know what the Spirit said to him when he prayed? Three men will come from England, and they will show you how to do it. We were the, I was one of the three men. So that's how God works. He moves through his Spirit powerfully. He's an awesome God as it says in that psalm, a really awesome God. So we came across another group of people who I did vaguely know back in the Middle East, um, based, I think, mainly in Cyprus at the time. They also were very keen to launch, but again, they didn't know how to do it. They didn't know the technicalities. And again, for a small Christian organization, um, you imagine like IBTI, maybe nothing much bigger in terms of scope of finance, and you ring up Utelsat, you say, I want to use your satellite. And they think, who are you? <laughs> Have you got a million dollars or something? <laughs> no. And, and so it doesn't quite work like that. It's much better to have somebody that's like an intermediate company. And that's what we were. We didn't have a million dollars either. But if you do things as, as a company and not as a charity, everything works totally differently. So it's a completely different ballgame. And anyway, I was a, an ex-satellite systems engineer. I worked for one of the most prestigious companies in the world that did that. So when I said I'm an ex-cave and wireless engineer, even Utahsat would say, oh, hi, yeah, what do you want? So that was a lot simpler. Um, so you see how God brings things together. Even things that I had done in my 20s were now impacting my ministry in my 40s. So nothing... God doesn't leave anything out. If you've committed your life to Christ like I'd had in my very, very early years, and you keep going, God will bring everything together and everything will be used. So even my satellite systems understanding was, was used to effect. That organization, you can look it up on the internet, it's Sat7, that's probably now the biggest mission organization. It's now running its own satellite channel. We ran it in terms of financing and doing all the kind of basic stuff to get them on air for about three years. Then the company that owned the satellite, um, or owned the piece of the satellite we were using, I won't go into the details, it's a bit complicated. You don't usually own an entire satellite, that's a whole group of countries do that. But something like British Telecom will own so many channels, or groups of channels called transponders. So people like Sky, British Telecom, France Telecom, German Telecom, all these people, they will own bits of it on leases. Those leases cost a lot of money. And uh, that's what we were doing. We were using part of one of those channels. And so we said to this organization, you can do the same. And so they were launched in May, I think it was, 1996. And I was on another, mission, another trip back to the States. It was a routine trip for me. I was still finishing off some work from my time in the Middle East, and I was a consultant to Dr. David Barrett, who's the editor of the World Christian Encyclopedia. That's the major academic document you'll look at in any university that tells you what goes on in a Christian world. And I was helping him with the statistics to do with the Church of the Middle East. And... He said to me, he said, David, he said, uh, he said, you used to be in telecoms or something. And the other said, yeah, David, I did. He said, do you know anything about satellites? I said, yes. 
He said, well, the Billy Graham organization have got into a bit of a, a mix. They, they're doing this mission well, but they can't work out how to do a satellite broadcast over the Middle East. Oh, I said, that'll take me about one phone call, I should think, to sort that out. <laughs> so we contacted the Billy Graham organization. I met their representative in London in Heathrow Airport over breakfast as I flew back into the Middle East again, sorted it all out, and Billy Graham's mission world did cover the whole world as a result of that meeting. Do you see how God works? This brings people together. A couple of meetings took no more than a couple of hours of discussion. A few faxes, a few telexes, that was all it took. Or these days, a few emails, I suppose. <laughs> Very simple. He got all the follow-up. Interestingly enough, the Billy Graham organization is, of course, very well organized when it comes to evangelism. They had got all the follow-up set up in the Middle East. They, they, worked out how, they knew how to do that from years ago. Um, but they hadn't got the satellite, and that's what they needed. Then I had another call. Uh, so this is a call from the cousin of the double-glazing salesman. And... Um, he said, I want you to come and meet a guy called Elias Malky. I thought, that name rings a bell. And I scratched my head. I thought, where on earth have I met a guy called Elias Malky? And it was way back in about March 1972. And that's a long time back. We're now in 1996. Elias Malky, yeah, he was a Pentecostal pastor, Assemblies of God pastor, in South Beirut. And I was passing through Beirut on my very first ever time to stay and live in the Middle East. I was traveling to Bahrain. There was a man living in Beirut, another Assemblies of God missionary who was an old friend of my family from Kent, had invited me to stop over with him. This man did not stop being a missionary when he was 60, 65 or anything else. He was into his 70s and still going strong. He was absolutely fluent in Arabic and Hebrew and I don't know what else. Anyway, I went... He met me at the airport. Um, he'd become entirely Middle Eastern, this, this OG missionary. Because <laughs> I, I got into Beirut Airport, this is in the old days, before the Lebanese Civil War, before the chaos of Lebanon. So it's, Lebanon was relatively old. I say relatively, because this is what happened. I got my suitcase off the, whatever it is, the merry-go-round that gives you a suitcase. <laughs> I, I started walking off, and I realized I, I had a clue. I couldn't see any signs that said customs. I kept walking, and then a guy walked up to me. He said, oh, are you David? I said, yeah, are you? Oh, right, you're Tom. All oh, right. He said, let's go. I said, I said, I haven't seen customs. He said, he said, oh, we go out that door. He said, don't worry about customs. He said, he said you can smuggle a house through Beirut. <laughs> so off we went. That was my introduction to the Middle East. A whole different ballgame, a whole different world. Um, yeah, I hadn't got anything in my suitcase that would have worried the Lebanese, I did have one or two things, including my Bible, that might have worried them in Bahrain because they weren't very keen on the Bible out there. So that was, that was all right in Lebanon. And in the process, staying over a weekend, I was asked to preach at this church in South Beirut where Elias Malki was a young pastor in those days. He was, in, he was maybe 40, I don't know if he was even 40. And I preached in South Beirut in this church. Um, and here we are, 1996, the same Elias Malky, as I imagined, um, not being many AOG pastors with that name, he was asking about doing a television program. Now, he had become 
famous, in the, and I mean seriously famous. He was like a TV celebrity in the Middle East. And he had been broadcasting the Christian gospel on regular, what we call terrestrial television, like where you get free view. That's terrestrial. That just picks up a signal traveling just above the earth, not satellites. And he'd been broadcasting one, a station, an amazing Christian station, which I can't go into the details of it all now. I can tell you many stories about it, but I won't. It's in South Lebanon. It's in an, an area fraught with problems. Um, militia and whatnot going on all over the place. And this TV station, busy broadcasting the gospel every day of the week. And he was on that regularly, ministering, evangelizing, praying for people to be healed. And loads of people have become healed through his ministry. He would just say, I'm praying for you and I believe God wants to do this. I believe God wants to do that. He'd pray for somebody. Before you knew what happened, a letter came in saying, yes, God has healed me of this. God has healed me of that. Uh, he was very well known. And he wanted to just do it on a bigger scale. He wanted to get into the modern age of satellites. So he said, yeah, we can do that for you. That's fine. And we did. He went on and he's called Middle East Gospel Outreach. And you can find that on the internet now. Um, he's, he's not yet retired. <laughs> I guess he might, he might retire one day. I don't know. I doubt it, to be honest. He's a guy that can sit in front of a television camera. And it's like you're sitting here in your front room and you're just sitting and having a chat with Elias. It's not all this big sort of preachy stuff. It's more a kind of, yeah, listen, you know, we, we need to talk about stuff. We need to talk about Jesus and what he does. So you, you don't have to convince anyone in the Middle East about God. There's not going to be any, hardly any atheists. There will be a few, but I mean, they're different generally to the kind of atheists you meet here anyway. So they're not really the same category. Um, you, most people believe in God, and they believe in the, they say they believe in the God of Abraham. So basically, we're all on the same. Ah, what about Jesus? That's the kind of question. What about Jesus? As Paul said, he's a stumbling block to the Jews, and his foolishness to the Greeks. That basically wraps up the whole world. So <laughs> Jesus is a stumbling block to the people he was sent to originally, and for the rest of the world. People can't make him out. It looks like a whole load of, I don't know what. So that's foolishness. So there we were, another one. It's only July 1996. One, two, three, four projects gone. So he was now broadcasting every week. Then there came a call from a, an Indian guy living in Essex. How can I get on satellite with the gospel? Yeah, well, it's again easy, but how, what, what, how, how have you done this? He turned out to be a Christian, a convert from Islam. His father had been a mullah in India. When he became converted to Christianity, his father had basically sent out a death warrant to have his son executed. He was living happily in Essex, thank you very much. Fortunately, you don't have people running around trying to execute Christians like that in Essex. And he was keen to share about the gospel and actually share about the Bible and really to bring teaching to new Christians. Now, there are lots of new Christians in the Middle East and North Africa. You've probably never heard of them, but they come regularly. They're like 
the fulfillment of that vision of the gospel going out and many hearing the good news. So we said, yes, we'll help you. Now this began around the time we were looking for something in which we could do a project that was basically a commercial project and gain an income. We hadn't done any fundraising. We hadn't gone to churches and asked for any money. We just felt God was leading us along and that God would actually supply what we needed. So we'd never asked for anything. And then I was watching Channel 4 News in August 1996 and John Snow presented did a very special piece on the Kurds all about their television station, their satellite television station. By the end of that piece on Channel 4, I felt God saying to me, you go and help the Kurds. So, yeah, where are they? <laughs> Most Kurds that I've ever come across are living in northern Iraq or eastern Turkey, so I wasn't about to go on a plane and go out anywhere, anywhere there. Um, I found out, actually, the headquarters of this Kurdish television channel were in Regent Street in London. Oh, that's easy to get up there. That's no problem. So we got talking. It took a year to secure their trust. Now, you might think that's a long time, but the Kurdish people have been abused and abused and abused by so many different people, and these were mainly Turkish Kurds, that they had a hard job trusting anyone. The last person they tried to trust with this project had done them and defrauded them of $1 million and run off with it. Are you going to trust anyone that defrauds you with that amount of money? Are you going to trust anyone again that says, I can help you with your satellite thing? No, you're not. Not very easily. Anyway, we persuaded them. We said, well, no, we're Christians. We do things differently. You know. And so they signed a contract. This contract was massive. It was to lease an entire transponder. That's like we're, we're suddenly in the league of British Telecom and France Telecom, these people, and we leased the entire transponder. It cost 4 million euros a year. There are an estimated 30 million Kurds. Well, even if they only give a few dollars each, you can easily do this project. And that's how it worked. They have their own studios in Belgium. And so that was just a cultural television channel that the Kurds had in their own language. In those days, the Kurdish population of Turkey was not allowed to speak Kurdish against the law. You might think we're very nice in Britain, but there was a law in Britain once that did not allow the Welsh to speak Welsh. So tread carefully when you say we're better. We're not. <laughs> We've done just the same things in our history. Uh, only now, in recent years, has Kurdish been allowed a bit more in Turkey. So this was the only television channel that Kurds could watch and really hear their own language, their own songs, their own cultural stuff. And we were, we were doing that. Now, it also gave us an income. Well, that was helpful. I could eat, eat more jam, <laughs> not just bread. But anyway, it was, that's, how it, that's how it worked out. Now, in April 1999, a sudden disaster struck. The Kurds, I mean, they're lovely people, but they don't really quite get to grips with all the legislation about broadcasting. And the broadcasting license they held was British. And believe me, if you've heard of Ofcom, just leave it at that. If you start tangling with people at that level in the regulatory framework of the British 
government, then you're going to find yourself in all kinds of difficulties. You've got to understand all this stuff. Now, we had to understand it for our own programs, uh, for our own license, but our, our transmissions were very simple and straightforward and didn't bother anybody. The Kurdish one, on the other hand, did bother the Turkish government, and they were using every conceivable method to try and get that thing off the air. We came across levels of bribery between European governments, the scale of which you would never even believe. It was um, incredible. I knew I had anything like it. The Norwegians told me that. I mean, they, they don't they don't deal in bribes in Norway. They told us the story, and others like it. And uh, you just wondered what on earth was going to happen. And they did something, and the equivalent of Ofcom, I don't remember what it was called, but it was the predecessor to Ofcom, got upset, and they cancelled their license. The first time that ever happened in this country for someone to lose their TV broadcasting license. So they rang us up, and, and typical Middle Eastern types, they said, oh, can you help us? I said, yeah, yeah, you've, got, you've given us the satellite, but we now need to broadcast it. Oh, well, can, you, can, can you broadcast our programs under your license? So I said, well, I better have a chat. Well, it ended up with me spending nearly five months living and working in their studios in Belgium. We let them broadcast under our license, keep the whole thing going. We didn't take a payment. We said, no, instead of a payment, why don't you let us have at least two hours a day to broadcast the gospel? Yeah, they said, that's fine. These are nominal Muslims, by the way. Well, they said, that's fine. You're, you're Christians, that's fine. You see why the Kurds are different. You might get a different understanding now about who the Kurdish people are. They are a bit different. And they said, oh, oh the first month, they said, we'll let you have four hours. Can you use four hours a day? I said, uh, yes, I can. Because I had already been in contact with another Christian group called Agape International, the people that made the Jesus film. Now, how many of you here have seen the Jesus film? Not Jesus of Nazareth, the Jesus film. It's the most watched film in the entire world. It's been translated into more languages than any other film. And it is simply St. Luke's Gospel made into a film. It's not rewritten as a script. It is the Gospel text. And then that's put into the drama. And I could get it in any major language. So I asked the people that own the rights to Jesus' film, could I, could I serialize it? Never been allowed before. They didn't really let you sort of take it away and show it as a movie. All they said, what are you doing? So I told them what I was doing. I worked with their office in France. I knew one of their guys from my work in the Middle East, so that was helpful. He knew who I was. And I said, well, I want to do, I want, I want the Jesus film in Arabic. I want it in Farsi. I want it in Kurdish Kurmanji. I want it in Kurdish Sharani. I want it in Central Asian Russian. I want all these different languages. I'm going to serialize it every single day so that you have to watch for four days to see the whole story in your language. And that's what we did. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Just rolling around. With things going on, the boss will say, if you want more information, please send an email to here, a fax to here, or a phone call, and different things. Now, there'd already been interesting feedback coming along the way. You remember the um, Bible channel guy, as I call him, the convert in Essex. Remember I mentioned him? He'd had his little thing running along the bottom of his program saying, call this number. And somebody had. But they'd misdialed. Or, I don't know, maybe they didn't read it right. They phoned a fax number. Do you know about telephones and fax machines? They sometimes are the same, aren't they? 
you can have a machine that does telephone and fax. Well, this is separate. This is a fax machine, and he has a telephone. They're different, so it's not quite the same thing. But this fax machine that he had had a telephone on it. So you could actually pick up the phone and use it to listen to somebody. This guy phones his fax machine at 3 o'clock in the morning, our time in England, and says, I want help. I want help to know how Jesus can help me. And our friend woke up. For some reason, the fax machine rang differently. We don't know why. We have no idea why it happened. And he jumped out of bed. He ran in there. He picked up the phone. And this guy was desperate to know about Jesus. Why? He was addicted to alcohol. And so he said he lived in a royal palace in Saudi Arabia. Hello? What are we... What's, who is he? No idea. But he spoke. That's what he, he wanted Jesus to deliver him from alcoholism. And that's what he chatted about in the middle of the night. It was the middle of the night for him or very early in the morning. So there were all kinds of responses coming along. So when we did the Jesus film, we were now covering even a bigger area. Um, and so there was a certain amount of strategy. Uh, I can't, obviously not going to tell you all the details about it, but I went and visited the headquarters of where we planned all this outreach and where we kept track of all the responses. And I walked into a room the size of an average very large double bedroom in a house somewhere in France. And on the wall were maps of the Middle East all the way through North Africa, Middle East, Iran, the whole lot. And on this map were little pins where all these responses had come through. Hundreds. I mean, there weren't just one. There were lots of responses from one of them, some of them. And then in 2000, this Agape group said they would like actually to focus on one country in the Middle East for the millennium. They wanted to focus in Arabic on, this, on the Arabian Peninsula, one area. And so we broadcast it faithfully every single day in 2000. And we got over a thousand people wanting to commit, to change their life, to get right with God, to meet with Jesus. At the same time, amazingly, other things were going on in the same region, which reflected a bit on this vision that I had. For some reason, in Algeria, masses of people were having dreams about Jesus, some about Mary, and coming to Christ. There's a whole group of them up in the mountains. God was moving amazingly, pouring out his blessing on all these people, some through dreams, some through the satellite television, other more traditional ways, obviously, were still going on. And so it, so it continued. There's obviously lots and lots of stories I could tell about this. Um, as, you, as I've already told you, the Turks are the most angry. Uh, I'm actually uh, basically persona non grata for the Turkish government. I'm not going to go to the country. I'd probably just be arrested um, because they got very angry about this project that I was involved in and threatened my life, so I'm not, I'm not really going to go there. Um, so you can see how all these things happen, and you could get afraid sometimes, wouldn't you? When somebody threatens your life, seriously, when a whole government starts threatening your life, you, you do take it a bit seriously. Um, I don't think they'd assassinate me in England, I don't know. But anyway, I, I wasn't very happy about it. 
But we had a prayer group. Now, you, you might think prayer groups, that you think you'd have to have a massive prayer support for this project. Do you know what the size of our prayer group was? Six ladies that met weekly in the house in Haven's Heath. And they listened to the Holy Spirit. They got pictures. They got words. One day they got a picture, and the picture was of a giant lion lying on the, standing on the ground, his mouth wide open, and all these little people walking towards it. But the lion didn't move. This picture, the lion didn't move. I recognized the lion was Turkey, but it was totally and utterly impotent when it came to the force of the gospel of Jesus. Couldn't do anything. See, the power of God is awesome. When God intervenes in the world, mankind, humankind, can do nothing except accept what he wants done. And that's what God wants done at that time. So when you have the remit to go out and speak in the name of Jesus, there's nothing actually gets in the way if you're really on track. So what happened to this? You're seeing me now, you know I'm a chaplain in the hospital. Why, why, why is he a chaplain in the hospital? Why is he not out and doing this stuff? Well, we were actually enabling all these Christian groups to establish themselves. So we weren't running them. We weren't saying, oh, you have to go through us all the time. Eventually, the satellite companies realized that all these Christian organizations were very good. They paid their bills on time. They were very faithful. And so they could trust them, and, and all the contracts went directly to them. The Kurdish thing was different. Uh, we were, yes, we were still broadcasting every day, but things were changing in the Kurdish world. And one of the big things was changing was Saddam Hussein. I won't go into the whole story of that. That's a bigger story. But... Eventually, as you know, in March 2003, America and Britain invaded Iraq. Now, northern Iraq, as you probably know if you've watched the television enough, is all Kurdish. It's called Kurdistan, that's what we call it. It's not, okay, it should have been a country in the 1920s. The French government promised it, the British agreed, and then the French reneged on the deal. So they haven't got a country. So they would still like at least a section of it to be Kurdistan. And it's pretty autonomous. And they, and they, and obviously the Kurds in Turkey, because they're all cousins, they're all friends. I mean, the, the difference between them is very, very small. Um, they wanted their television channel 24 hours a day for all that was going on now with the invasion of Iraq. So we said, yes, well, obviously it's your channel, you pay for it. And so that's when our contribution came to an end. So that's really where things came to stand. And later that year, what we did we gave our license, our broadcasting license, to this channel called the Bible Channel, which is the one that has all these little groups of converts meeting in homes, listening to Bible teaching. They'll get up at 4 a.m. in the morning and sit as a family and study the Bible every day. That's the kind of, that's the kind of Christians we've got in these countries. So when the likes of IS come along, you shouldn't be too surprised when the four that were executed on the beach in North Africa, each one just said, Jesus is Lord, before he was beheaded. They didn't blink. Jesus is Lord. That's the kind of awesome God we've had. So I thought I'd encourage you with this story, because I don't think any of you really heard it. And I did tell it to another church in Burgess Hill a couple of weeks ago, so I thought, well, you shouldn't really miss out. So shall we just close in prayer, and we'll pray for these folks. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who is awesome, 
You have been awesome in bringing Jesus to us, and you are awesome through the works of your Holy Spirit, Lord, that we are witnesses to. And Lord, you are awesome in taking your message in many and varied ways throughout the world, using modern technology like satellites, using dreams directly to present yourself to people that are seeking you, because your word says, seek me and you will find me. And we know, Lord, that you are very true to your word. And we pray, Lord, for all those who have been seeking you, and have found you and committed themselves to you, that in all these countries in the parts of the world we've been talking about, where there is persecution, which is quite normal for Christians. And we pray, Lord, for all those who live in fear of their lives and yet are strong in their faith. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen their faith, strengthen their resolve, and enable them to be those who witness even unto death. And make us, Lord, like them, to be those who have the same level of commitment to Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast at Centre Church. One church, passionately loving God and people, in Burgess Hill and Brighton. To get the latest news, or for any other information, check out our website at www.centrechurch.uk.